We're in Genesis chapter 46. I'm very grateful to Monty for not asking me to read the whole chapter because you'll notice the middle sections got a lot of names and place names. Um, we're going we're gonna to read the first seven verses of chapter 46, and then we're going to jump to verse 24, 28 even at the end. So it's entitled, Jacob Goes to Egypt. So Israel set out with all that was his, and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Then Jacob left Beersheba, and Israel's sons took their father Jacob and their children and their wives in the carts that Pharaoh had sent to him to transport him. They also took with them their livestock and the possessions they had acquired in Canaan, and Jacob and all his offspring went to Egypt. He took with him to Egypt his sons and grandsons and his daughters and granddaughters, all his offspring. Verse 28. Now Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to get directions to Goshen. When they arrived in the region of Goshen, Joseph had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and wept for a long time. Israel said to Joseph, now I am ready to die since I have seen for myself that you are still alive. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's households, I will go up and speak to Pharaoh and say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were living in the land of Canaan have come to me. The men are shepherds, they tend livestock, and they have brought along their flocks and herds and everything they own. When Pharaoh calls you in and asks, what is your occupation? You should answer, your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on, just as our fathers did. Then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen, for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. I'm just noticing there's no water here. I should have checked this before the service. I don't know if somebody could maybe get me a little glass from over there, just in case I die during the service or something. Or not quite as serious as that, hopefully. Ian and I were friends at high school, and we sat beside each other for all of our A-level classes, and we did the same subjects, we had similar interests, similar dreams, and we're friendly rivals when it came to see who could get the higher score in the various tests. In the end, we went to different universities, and our paths separated, but there was every chance that we might end up in the same career but it wasn't to be. God called me into ministry, while Ian is now a top broadcaster with Sky News. One night a few years ago, I found myself in a dingy student bar in Limerick, a real dive of a place, waiting for a couple of students who hadn't turned up. It was early in my time with Christian Unions Ireland, and I was beginning to get a little bit frustrated, 
at sometimes the long distance that you had to travel and the disappointments that would be there uh, when you met. So there I was sitting in this absolute dive of a place in Limerick, waiting for people who hadn't shown up, and I looked up to the big flat screen TV to my right, and there was Ian appearing on the screen, a picture of Copacabana Beach on the eve of the World Cup. And there he was reporting on the upcoming tournament, surrounded by beach babes and world football stars. I texted him, just seen you on TV. You're on a beach in Brazil. I'm in a dive in Limerick. Where did it all go wrong? <laughs> now, it was tongue-in-cheek and uh, reality. I wouldn't swap my life for Ian's, but I wonder if there have been times that you've looked at your circumstances, compared to others even, and thought, where has it gone wrong? Where is God right now? Can He be here? Can God be at work in this place where I am? We've been following the story of Jacob and his sons for a while now. And although things are now coming to a climax, as far as Jacob was concerned, up to chapter 45, it was a case of where did it all go wrong? He had lost his favorite son. He was in danger of losing a couple of others. He was starving. And all the promises that God had made to him in the past seemed just that little bit hollow. And even that now, although he's faced with the unbelievable news that his, his favorite son Joseph is alive and wants to meet him, there's still a nagging fear because this means leaving the land. It means going to Egypt. And the whole story of his family has been about God providing a land of their own and descendants to populate that land. Now, the descendants had started to come. It was a big family, 12 sons, not bad. But what about the land? Just as they were beginning to settle, they had to leave. Surely that couldn't be God's will. Why can't God just send them food to where they were? Going to Egypt had never gone well. Hadn't gone well for his grandfather in chapter 12. And God had specifically told his father Isaac in chapter 26 not to go to Egypt. So what's God playing at? Is he changing his mind? Well, Jacob was about to find out a little bit more about the God of his fathers and a little bit more about himself. He was going to experience, first of all, what I call God's strange assurances. In the midst of confusion and doubt, God in his mercy can come to reassure us and surprise us. God was about to speak directly to Jacob for the last time in this book. In fact, this is the last time that it's recorded for 400 years about God speaking directly to His people. Next time's the burning bush with Moses. So let's look at the context, the way that maybe Jacob, even unconsciously, was preparing his own heart to hear God speak. Focus is obviously on God and what He's saying, but there's a couple of interesting indicators that help us to see where Jacob is at in terms of his faith and in terms of his own heart. First of all, there's a sense of wholeheartedness. Wholeheartedness. Jacob, it says in the first verse, came with all that was his, literally all that he had, everything that he was, in terms of his journey with God. They were all in it together, not just him, but his family and what little possessions they had left. And they were setting out not to make their fortune. The text is clear about that. Jacob is only moving because he wants to see Joseph. 
And if you look at the end of the previous chapter, the brothers say nothing about all the wealth of Egypt, all the property, and all the generous stuff that Joseph had sent with them. The only thing they really talk about is, is Joseph is alive. Now they valued their brother and their father more than the other stuff. And think of Jacob. But Jacob's whole life up to this point has largely been motivated by, by property and, and material things. He was the grasper. He was the stealer of his brother's inheritance. He was the guy who cheated his father-in-law. He was driven above all else by the pursuit of money and property, and he now comes to Egypt not for its riches, not for its comfort, not for its security, but out of love for a son. Different priorities, wholeheartedness. Spiritually, why do we journey? Why do we seek God? Is it out of love for the Son? Is it for the embrace at the end of the journey? Or is it still out of what we might get, how we might benefit? And when we encourage others on this journey in our evangelism, is it honest? Do we, do we present the wonder of Christ, or do we try to sweeten it a little bit by appealing to other baser motives? Oh, yeah, we might distance ourselves from the crassness of sort of health and wealth theology, come to Jesus and be rich. But we could do it a different way. Come to Jesus, and it'll be good for your social prospects. Come to our church, it'll be good for your kids. You'll get in with the right people, those who are in the know. Jacob traveled with the sole intention of seeing Joseph and to find out if this really was God's will. Joseph, who was risen, as it were, from the dead. And we need to come purely out of love for the greater than Joseph, the king of all kings. And as, Joseph, um, as Jacob brought all that was his to Joseph, so too we wholeheartedly need to bring all that we have. It's not a case of everything except my career prospects everything except my family relationships, everything except my sexuality, everything except my reputation. Jacob came with everything that he had. It's also significant that God speaks to reassure him once he's on that journey. See, Jacob has already resolved to go, and now that he's opened his heart to do that, God speaks to him. Yeah, guidance can be hard, but sometimes I think there's too much waiting around for God to say this or God to say that when we just need to act. And as we go forward in faith, God, if need be, comes alongside us to rescue us or to correct us. And then in terms of preparing the ground for God to speak, we see also two interesting and contrasting things with Jacob things that I think are contrasting but also complementary. We see a flexibility and a rootedness. Or put it like this, an understanding that some things change with time and some things never change. Jacob's big fear at this stage would have been, is this the right thing to do? Egypt wasn't right for Abraham or Isaac, but he needs to get food. He needs to see his son but is it right? He was leaving the promised land. Is this a lack of faith? 
Yes, as I said, guidance can be hard. But when it comes to timing or geography or the little decisions of our day-to-day life, the where, the how, the who, things are not necessarily going to be the same for every believer. Circumstances change. People are different. In the bigger purposes of God, the details aren't always fixed. God's purposes are not monochrome. What may be His will for one person may not be His will for another. When Jesus sent out the 70 in Luke 10 on their mission trip, He told them not to carry an extra bag or an extra coat, but in Luke 22, He says to them, but now if you have a purse, take it, and if you have a bag, take it, and if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and get one. The two mission trips were for different purposes at different times. They required different guidance. And in Acts 16, we hear of Paul being prevented from preaching where he wanted to preach in Bithynia. God told him not to go there. But in 1 Peter 1, we find out there's a church now there, so somebody else was guided to go there. God guiding us somewhere or to do something in the past doesn't mean that He can't tell us later on to move on and do something different. God may prevent us from doing something in the past and yet allow us to do it in the future. God may guide someone else to go somewhere or to do something, but that says nothing about whether it's right for us. There needs to be a flexibility. It's about our receptiveness to God here and now, our walk with Him at this time. That's what matters. And yet, there are some things that never change. There is our rootedness in the sacred tradition of His family. Jacob worships, and he offers sacrifices at Beersheba. He places himself in the tradition of his fathers. He identifies with that tradition. His fathers had worshipped at that place. It was actually his own father, Isaac, who had built that very altar and to whom God spoke there. And when God speaks to Jacob, he uses the very words, the very forms that he spoke to Abraham and Isaac with. Yes, God's ways are flexible, but they are flexible within carefully defined limits. His character, His overriding will for His people never change. And amid all the flexibility, He will never guide His people one day to obey Him and the next to disobey. He doesn't change like shifting shadows, says the Apostle James. So yes, the details may change from generation to generation, but He is the same, and His law and His character remain unchanged. Now, for Jacob, that meant worshiping at the altar of his father. For us, it means steadfastly staying within our tradition of revealed truth. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, all fulfilled in Christ, lived out through the apostles and the church fathers and all that heritage of Christianity to which we owe so much and on the shoulders of which we stand. If the danger of fundamentalism is that they forget the flexibility and put God in a box. It always has to be this way. Then surely the danger of what is termed so much of progressive Christianity is that it can lose its rootedness 
It is no longer the God of Abraham and Isaac or the faith of our fathers and mothers. Instead, we reshape it and reimagine it and refashion it into simply what we would like to be, devoid of roots, shifting with the cultural wind. And for us, the challenge of Christian maturity is, I guess, what I would call sorting our Egypts out from our Beersheba's. Where is it flexible? Where has it to be rooted? What is essential and what is not? So stay flexible, and you'll see in the next slide, stay rooted. Sort out your Egypts from your Beersheba's. So Jacob has prepared the way for God to speak. And when he does speak, what do we see? Well, we see, first of all, that it's a comforting word. Don't be afraid. That's a standard start for when God speaks to His people. He said it to Abraham in chapter 15. He said it to Isaac in chapter 26. He even said it to the outcast Hagar in chapter 21. Don't be afraid. There was one occasion he didn't start with that, interestingly, with Jacob earlier in his life at Bethel in chapter 26. You remember Jacob and the dream of the ladder going up to heaven? On that occasion, God just interrupts his life. Boom! Jacob was a runaway. God was far from his mind. So God dealt with him differently. You know, maybe a little bit of fear would do Jacob no harm at that stage in his life. And it's after that vision we hear that Jacob was suddenly afraid. Now God was back in his life, and so he worships after the event. But here, he's older and wiser, and he worships. And as this older, more chastened, humbler, wise man quietly obeys and moves on with God and worships Him, God speaks and He says, don't be afraid. But the second word is very surprising. It's don't be afraid to go to Egypt. He didn't know what God was up to with the Egypt thing, but God reassures him with the surprising news that it's okay. He repeats the same promise he made to his grandfather, I'll make you into a great nation. But then there's a little word that we might have overlooked and would have caused great surprise. I will make you into a great nation there, in Egypt. God is going to form His people. Who would have thought? But yet, thirdly, His Word is consistent. The old promises aren't abandoned. He hasn't forgotten. God would still be true. I will go with you, and I will surely bring you back again. Egypt is a temporary sojourn. It wasn't the last word. It wasn't the end of the story. So, Jacob, don't be afraid. This changes nothing. My promises still stand. I know what I'm doing. There will still be a land for you, and you will still be my people. <clears throat> and fourthly, God's Word is intensely personal. Yes, there is a grand purpose. Yes, God's will is worked out on the national and international stage. Yes, there's going to be a future for his descendants. All of that would have been some comfort to Jacob. But at that stage of his life, old and infirm, 
carried in a cart, lifted by his sons, what is his biggest prayer? What's his greatest need? It's to see his son. Would he survive the journey? It's okay, says God. If I'm big enough to bring a nation back out of Egypt, I'm big enough to bring you to your son. <clears throat> God's words. As we're on this journey, as we obey, as we worship, God speaks to us. And we this morning, who know so far more about the grace of God than ever Jacob could, we know how the story ends. <clears throat> we have witnessed the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son. And so God comforts us again in our circumstances with the words, I am with you. And He may surprise us. It is I am with you through the difficulty and the trial and the pain in strange places maybe you didn't ask to be. And His words are consistent. My promises still stand. You have a hope and you have a future. You have a place prepared for you. This is not the final word. Where you are now is not the end of the story. I will bring you safe into my presence. And the words are also personal. He knows your deepest need. And if what you're praying for is indeed your deepest need, He will hear. It will be different for everyone, but He will answer. Bruce Waltke has written extensively about this story, and he says, God's presence does not eliminate pain, but it does assure provision and protection in the midst of it. So, God strains assurances. The last part of the chapter, 28 to 34, is God's strange provision. Who would have thought <clears throat> that all this time all these years when Jacob had given up on faith, and I think it's fair to say that. As far as he's concerned, Joseph was dead. The promises are empty. He's going to die a sad old man surrounded by sons that are nothing but a disappointment to him. And yet, during that time of unbelief, God was at work in Egypt through Joseph. And so, in verse 29, the two are reunited Joseph, it says, verse 29, appears before him. And that word appear, every other time in Genesis, it's only used of God appearing to someone. And to Jacob, who knew what it was to meet with God in chapter 32, again, it was like seeing God himself. This is a story about a type of resurrection, but above all about reunion, and for the whole family about reconciliation. The family that had been divided by Joseph was now united by him. Frederick Buchner has written a quite beautiful, very earthy novel about Jacob. It's called Son of Laughter. And I really recommend that as we've been going through this story, if you want to read a well-written novel, then Frederick Buchner, Son of Laughter. Uh, don't read it if you like your biblical characters to be nice and idealized. But if you want to know a little bit more about the brothers and what life was like in that family, he does a really good job of filling out the story and writing between the lines and painting a picture of what it might have been like. And this is how Frederick Buchner describes their meeting. He says this, I could hear the oxen feeding. I could hear the tamarisks stirring in the dark. I'd been told Joseph's hand will close your eyes. I thought it was a dream. 
when my sons returned to tell me that Joseph was alive. I thought so still. It was no dream that I had eyes to close, but it was a dream that he had living hands to close them. It was a dream when my eyes finally beheld him. I beheld him in the grazing pastures of the black land which they call Goshen. He came out from the city to meet me there as I was coming southward. It is a green land that lies where the river spreads like a flower and seven branches to the sea. I saw him coming towards me through the grass, Joseph. I saw his hands. He wore the king's ring on his finger. All that my lips could speak at first was unshaped air. He didn't speak. His hands were on my arms. And I said, now let me die, since my eyes have seen your face. They were Rachel's eyes I saw in his face. They were Rachel's eyes I saw them with. We took each other in our arms. There were white birds in the grass. There were cattle grazing. Now I'm ready to die. My eyes have seen you are alive. Now, does that remind you of anything? Another old man, well past his years, this time holding a baby and saying, Now, Lord, let your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. A man who bore the same name as another player in this story, Simeon, holding the infant Jesus. The church has called Simeon's words the nunc dimittis, I can go now. This was Jacob's, I can go now, his nunc dimittis. He knew his life was complete, but God granted him another 17 years. The irony was that now that he was ready to die, he was actually ready to live his happiest days, his greatest glory, his greatest usefulness, his greatest legacy were now in the future. He got to bless his sons. Often he feared he would go to the grave in pain. You see that in his words over the previous chapters, you will bring my gray head down to the earth in pain. But now he knows he can go in joy and peace. If you were at the commissioning service for us a few weeks ago here, you will have heard the story that Lindsay's told of the South Pacific Islanders and the missionary who was with them for over 30 years with not one conversion. And when he died, his life apparently a failure. The church that sent him sent someone else. And within a couple of years, there was widespread revival hundreds coming to faith. And then the new missionary said to them, how come that my predecessor was here for 30 years and nobody responded? He was told this. One of the things he told us when he came was that Christians don't fear death. So we decided to wait and find out and see how he died. And now we believe. Now we believe. Folks, it's about how we finish. And then the strangeness of God's provision is actually seen through what happens when they reach Egypt. I call this being in Egypt, but not of Egypt. 
God had a way of protecting them from being ensnared by the Egyptian religion and way of life. You see, Joseph was the exception. He was a young man of incredible moral character who remained faithful in Egypt for decades. God knew that he had it in him to do that. God was with him. But when it came to the other lot, to Judah and Reuben and Simeon and Levi, their record wasn't great in terms of maintaining their integrity in a hostile culture. So Joseph has it worked out. He also knew that honesty wasn't a great family trait either, and they may be tempted to color the truth in terms of their job prospects when they got to Egypt. So Joseph says, <coughs> be honest. Tell Pharaoh that you are herdsmen. And so they get to live in Goshen. One writer has said that the Egyptian attitude to shepherds that we read about in the last verse of the chapter, the Egyptian attitude to shepherds wasn't so much hostility as social separation, a little bit like how maybe many regard the traveling community or hippie communes today. And by going to Goshen, it allowed them to prosper. The land was fertile, but they were able to remain and grow separately from the Egyptians. So there they were, alive, well-fed, saved, prospering, but in Egypt, and living with a stigma, shepherds, foreigners, settled but not at home, resident but different and a little despised, in but not really of. And that brings us to the other third of the chapter, the bit in the middle that I saved Colin from reading, although it might have been fun. We've said a lot in this whole series about the Christ echoes. Joseph, betrayed, falsely accused, rising to become king of the land, and we've seen the nunc dimittis today. But there's also another echo. What about Christ's people? What about us, the church? What I call God's strange community. That long list of names in the middle of the chapter. Settled but not at home. Resident but different and a little despised. In but not really of. Does that remind you of anything? Like later Israel in exile, so too early Israel in Goshen, give us a picture of what it's like to be the church, to be the people of God. A little template, just in case, just in case anybody still thinks the church is going to be a perfect place. These verses show how messy it is. Even the numbering is messy. It's an it's a idealized genealogy rather than a totally accurate one. Now, if you're sad enough or bored enough and you've been doing some counting, don't do it now until I finish, please. But you might do it later, and you might think these numbers don't actually add up. Now, the important phrase is at the end, verse 21, the number was 70 in all. You see in the previous verse it says 66. So you've got to add the two sons of Joseph and Jacob himself and Joseph himself. But even that 66 doesn't necessarily add up because you have a couple of guys who die in Canaan. And get this, there's actually a name there that almost certainly didn't exist. It's a combination, a later scribal error of two names put together. 
So when you subtract the guys who die and the guy who didn't exist, and you add on Joseph and his family, the important thing is there's 70 people, okay? That's all you need to know. A representative number. In Genesis chapter 10, the nations of the world were 70. So here you have a miniature nation, the promise starting to become true. And in spite of his past, Jacob enters Egypt as the father of a little nation, a little glimpse that maybe the promise is starting to come true. And folks, it was no accident that Jesus chose 12 disciples. The new community he was forming was to be a direct successor to the 12 tribes that formed the people of Israel. And those guys were nearly as dysfunctional as these ones. Peter and Thomas and Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector were no better raw material than Simeon or Judah. The twelve replacing the twelve. And then, as I mentioned already in Luke 10, Jesus sends out 70 on his first mission trip to reach the world. So we have a crew of 12 and a crew of 70 going down into Egypt. Might be idealized number, but it's certainly not ideal characters. But that's what God chooses to work with. That's his story. This is our story. Our story, folks, doesn't begin with the Presbyterian church. Our story doesn't begin with the Reformation. It doesn't begin with Constantine and the Council of Nicaea. It doesn't even begin with Pentecost. A fully biblical reading of God's story of salvation history, working through a people called to bless the world, starts with this family. Do you want to know who was in it? A couple of murderers, a guy who slept with his stepmother behind his father's back, a guy who got a prostitute pregnant and then went to have her killed. Nice, eh? People whose background was pretty inauspicious, a guy whose mum was a Canaanite, possibly the product of Simeon's little fling or one-night stand, the sons of an Egyptian woman, grandsons of a pagan high priestess. They're all there in the list. No matter their past, no matter where they came from, they were part of God's story. And as that story becomes clearer and clearer as the Bible progresses, we see that God still does that. He still starts with rough material, and He's in the business of changing it into something beautiful. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who have sex with men, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers. That is what some of you were. But you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. It's never been any other way. He's not interested in how you start, but where you are. He's not interested in what you once were. He sees only what you were meant to be and what he can make of you. God's strange community. Assuring us with his word. When all seems to have gone wrong, when we're journeying into the unknown. Providing for us by his spirit when we're living in the far country that isn't our home. Because. Because he's provided something better for us something more permanent, a future, a hope. For one nation has become every tribe and tongue.
where the 70 have become 144,000, another idealized number, who come and bow down, not before the king of Egypt, but before the king of kings. And where a tribe of shepherds become the flock of God following the good shepherd. What does a good shepherd promise? They will enter in by me, the true gate, and they will go in and out and find pasture. These little shepherds living in Goshen, after a long meandering journey, a little picture of what it's like for us as their inheritors of the grace of God to live in this world and through him to find a home and to find pasture. Amen.